0: Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. All right, Revelation chapter number 10. Let me give you just a really, really quick update to this point, because I don't want to parachute you into the chapter with no context. This is in the middle of judgments. This is in the middle specifically of the trumpet judgments. Uh, We saw in chapter number nine that the sixth trumpet of judgment has sounded, which is also known as the second woe, in that there is this pain and hurt befalling the earth during a very specific period of time that is intense, uh, that God is trying to get earth's attention in some ways, but also he is rewarding their unrighteousness with judgment. So this is in the context of that is this little snippet, this parenthetical in Revelation chapter number 11. And most of it is about two witnesses. And I want us to understand it. And I'll tell you up front, there are four verses at the beginning of Revelation 11 that if you don't understand these four verses, and the foundation that it lays, then the next 10 verses don't make a lot of sense. So we have to get some history and we have to dig a little bit to understand the first four, but it'll make sense after that. So here we go, verse number one. And speaking of these witnesses who have this mandate that given by God and even some spiritual preparation. So verse number one, there was given me a reed likened to a rod and the angels stood saying, rise measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. So a reed in the Bible days would have been our measuring tape, a long straight stick that you could use for measuring purposes. And John's given a measuring tool and he's told to measure the temple, the altar, and then to do presumably some sort of head count on those that are worshiping. Verse number two, but the court, which is without the temple, leave out, don't measure it. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. So, what you find is two things at least. Number one, a specific place, this holy city where the temple is, that we'll see here in a moment, in even clearer fashion, is Jerusalem. Number two, a specific period of time, which is forty two months, and it mentions this temple that John is supposed to measure, but don't measure the courtyard of the Gentiles, which was certainly a part of the physical temple. And what does he mean by temple? And there's all kinds of of thoughts, but I think it's pretty straightforward. Uh, Some have said, this is Jesus. You know, Jesus refers to himself as a temple. When he told the disciples that uh, this temple will be torn down, but three days later, it will be reconstructed. And the disciples scratched their head and said, "You you can't rebuild the temple in three days. It's too big. No way. And then Jesus dies and he raises from the dead. And the disciples said, Oh, okay. That's what he was talking about. He was talking about himself. He was the temple that would be destroyed and he would be raised up three days later. We know biblically that we are the temple of God, believers, saints of the New Testament age. We're told in Corinthians that what, don't you know? That your body is the temple of God, like God's spirit resides in you and that makes you his temple. Is it talking about Jesus? Is it talking about believers? No, it's just talking about the temple, like the edifice, the the building. Now, that is a little bit confusing because there were multiple temples. Solomon built a temple, the first temple or Solomon's temple. David had prepared all of the materials for that, and then Solomon built it, and it was magnificent. And you can read about that in the pages of scripture. Of course, that temple was torn down, it was destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army came and they plundered it first. They set up Israel as a vassal state, but Israel would not comply, and they came back and they destroyed the temple. And then you find much of the prophets. They begin to yearn and crave the rebuilding of the temple so that worship could resume. And you find Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah. And so many of those Old Testament prophets are about the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the city walls so that worship could resume as normal. And eventually, a second temple is built, Zerubbabel's Temple. This temple is smaller and not nearly as grand as Solomon's. But it is built and they can worship. And Herod takes this temple and he not just spruces it up, he expands it massively. And that temple now becomes known as Herod's temple. This would have been the temple that was in Jesus's day. That when temple worship was happening or he went to Jerusalem, it all centered around Zerubbabel's or Herod's or the second temple. And Jesus spoke of this temple. Jesus prophesied that this temple would be overthrown, that no stone would be left upon another and that it would be completely demolished. And not too long after Jesus' ascension, that temple, Herod's temple, was in fact destroyed in 70 AD when the would-be emperor Titus came into Jerusalem and just decimated that temple. But there is a third temple that is the subject matter of a lot of prophecy, It really is this staple that is in so many prophecies that becomes a centerpiece. Daniel prophesies of a temple where one day there will be an abomination that happens inside of this temple. That's not good. It will be an abomination of desolation. Jesus refers back to this, this prophecy of Daniel about this temple. And we'll, we're told that after this abomination of desolation is a period of 42 months, of 1,260 days, of, of three and a half years of great tribulation. I put that reference in your notes and you can read it for yourself. Where Jesus says, what Daniel predicted, when that happens, that will be the great tribulation. And when it happens, you better run for the hills because it is not going to be pretty. Paul speaks of this event. And here, John makes allusion to it. That there will be a temple that is built. Jewish worship will resume. Much of the infrastructure to make this happen has already happened. If you've ever been to Israel, you likely went to the Temple Institute in Jerusalem where much of the furniture has already been constructed. It's there, ready to go for worship. The plans for the third temple have already been laid out. You can go to the Temple Institute and get an architectural a fly-through of the third temple that is planning to be built. And the prophecy is that this will be built, worship will resume, and then the Antichrist, the, this, this son of perdition, will take... The worship in the temple and will twist it and will pervert it and will say, Worship me, I'm God. And in that moment, that is the abomination of desolation. That is completely contorting what should be. And he'll say, I'm God, worship me. And the prediction is that there will be three and a half years, 42 months of great tribulation and time that is heavy and thick and punishment. And this is alluding to that temple, that period of time, that place, these happenings. And it takes that period of time and that place, and it says that there will be two witnesses during this time. And you can read about them in verse 3. I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy 1,203 score days. You say, how long is that? It's 42 months. It's three and a half years. It's the same thing. And they'll prophesy in sackcloth. Meaning, physically, they will represent internally what is happening. That what they have to say will not be merry, will not be cheer, will not be good news. What they have to say will be heavy and hard, and it will weigh on them. It is is a sackcloth message. And they will be my prophets. And And you say, who are these two? Well, it tells you in verse number four. These are The two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. You say, that doesn't help me. I know. (laughs) But perhaps it should. Now, it never names their names. And there's, I mean, endless speculation as to who they are. Is it Elijah and Moses? Is it Elijah and Enoch? Is it two other people? Is it whatever? Look, if God wanted us to know their names, he would have given us their names. Yeah, and there's a great danger in prophecy to spend so much time fixating on the things that you don't know that you ignore the things that you do know. And you, you don't need another revelation, you don't need another word, you just need to obey what's on, what's on paper. We don't know who they are exactly, but we are told that they are the two olive trees. Now, if you know Zechariah's prophecy about the two olive trees, that's helpful. If you don't know Zechariah's prophecy about the two olive trees, not helpful at all. So let me give you the cliff note version on that. Zechariah chapter 4, God tells of two witnesses who will stand before him, who will bear witness. And we're told, actually Zechariah's asked, do you know who they are? And he's like, no, I don't know who they are. And he's told very specifically, Zechariah chapter number 4, verse number um, 11 What are the two olive trees on the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side? Verse 14, they're the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So what's happening in Revelation 11? Here's what's happening. It's very simple, but it's very profound. There's this foundation being laid of John alluding back to all of these instances of Daniel's prophecy of of the temple, even what Jesus had said, alluding back to Zechariah's prophecy that these two witnesses are coming that are known as these two olive trees. He's he's alluding back to this and what he's saying is I'm about to tell you about something that was predicted long ago. I'm about to tell you of a little bit of Daniel's prophecy and a little bit of Zechariah's prophecy and what he's trying to communicate, at least in, in its basic form, is that What is going to happen is not something that is new. It's not something that it is a revelation of sorts. You're going to get far more specificity than you've ever had before. But the concept is not new. This is not God blowing the sixth trumpet and then saying, yo, angels, what should we do? Like, let's have a brainstorm session here. I don't know what I should put in this sixth trumpet. It is God blowing a sixth trumpet. And he has a plan that he's been working for a long time. And he's taking that plan of a temple and of the two olive trees that will be my witnesses, and he is bringing it to fruition in this moment, and that's supposed to be an encouraging note. It's supposed to—you have to know your Old Testament to get it. I understand that, and that can be heavy and tricky, and that's my job to try to take some of that and make it easy and plain for you. But what he's trying to say is that none of this is new. God is not playing it by ear. God is not adjusting on the fly. God knows what he's doing and he's doing it. And he's he's known what he's going to do for a long time. And that's an encouraging note. To know that the specifics we get on these two prophets is not just some newfangled thought that John just came up with or God just recently thought of. It is he's a master planner. He is strategic. He is in control and let that comfort you. And he begins to tell us what these two witnesses will look like, what their ministry will look like, what will happen in pretty grave detail. And here's what he says. First of all, there's miracles. There's this supernatural protection about these witnesses. Verse number five, if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. If any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. You say, oh, what? Does that mean they're like fire-breathing dragon prophets? Like, what is this? I personally don't think so. I personally think this is, is giving verbiage to what you saw in the ministry of Elijah. Then at multiple points in time, the enemies of God, Came after Elijah and he went toe to toe with him and called down fire from heaven. And it destroyed the enemies. This is actually something the disciples picked up on and they asked Jesus to do. If you remember that story where there are these people that are antagonizing Jesus and they're like, Jesus, call down fire from heaven and just, you know, lick them up. And Jesus says, Guys, you're missing the whole point of while I'm here. Like, this is. I didn't come to destroy the enemies. I I came to give my life for them. And he has this whole teaching moment with them. But in this moment, for these two witnesses, there will be those that oppose them. The text will say in a minute, they make war with them. They want to kill them and eradicate them. And God gives them a supernatural ability to perhaps call down fire from heaven to protect themselves and to insulate themselves for what is coming at them. And we're also told in verse six that they have power to shut heaven, that it rain not the days of the prophecy, drought. And they have power over the waters to turn them to blood, to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So the point is that there's a unique ministry of judgment that these two witnesses have, and they have in their tool bag, in a supernatural way, death and drought and disastrous plagues that they are able to utilize that keeps them safe. I love how Adrian Rogers took this and kind of turned it to application when he said that this is a principle that is echoed through the pages of scripture that no matter who you are, whether you're two witnesses in Revelation or whether you today, that when you do God's work in God's way, you never lack God's provision or God's protection. That God has a way of providing for and protecting his people for what he's called them to do. And these two witnesses are certainly an example of this, that they are protected in a very unusual way. And while they are witnesses in this time period, it would be fair to say, who are the witnesses today? And the witnesses today are you and I. Jesus leaves his followers with the instructions that you will be my witnesses, right? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. I, I want you to go and witness for me and you can know and have a sigh of relief. Then man, when, I, when I open up my mouth and I witness for the Lord Jesus when I do my best to give money to missions and see the witness and the testimony of Jesus be made great all over the world to the uttermost part of the earth, when I'm at work and I seek to evangelize and share the gospel with somebody, that when I am doing God's work and I'm witnessing for him and I want to do it certainly in his power, that that God is there with me in those moments. And you can't guarantee what someone will think or what someone will say or if they'll be mad at you for it. But you can witness, and you can witness confidently knowing that God's on your side. And these men do exactly this. And it goes on to say that not only is there this ministry that they have, these miracles that they have, but there's a martyrdom that takes place. Verse number seven. When they shall have finished their testimony... The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. Now, more to come on the beast later on through the pages of Revelation. We'll look at the beast in grave detail. We'll just suffice it to say for right now, one of the great enemies of God. Okay, we'll just leave it there for now. Comes and wants to kill these two witnesses. And it says that he does. He does. Say, pastor, time out. I thought you just said that God's work done in God's way never lacks God's protection or God's provision. Well, look at the first part of the verse. When their testimony was finished. They had done what God had called them to do. Testimony was finished. Presumably, you're very close to the end of 42 months because it's the time period that they've been given. And they're dead. Verse number eight, their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city. Spiritually, it's called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now, you tell me where Jesus was crucified. What city was he crucified in? Let's do it on three. Where was Jesus crucified? One, two, three. Oh, you're smart. Man, look at you guys. That's the place. Things have become so run down and so opposed to God under the leadership of said Antichrist That spiritually, it says, now Jerusalem, which is supposed to be the holy city, is no longer the holy city. Spiritually, it's Sodom. Spiritually, it's Egypt. And they're left to rot in the streets. A a sign of great uh, disrespect. To not treat their bodies, to not give them a burial. Verse number nine. And they of the people and the kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half. And they shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves and they that dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. So the point is that they are spring loaded to hate these guys. When they die, it is a source of festivity. It is happy dead prophets day. Let's send some gifts to everybody, right? This is the closest thing that I can think of. This is actually the moment in the Wizard of Oz when the Wicked Witch of the West dies. You remember that moment? I in junior high had to play the munchkin coroner who examined the Wicked Witch of the West and declared her officially dead in the Wizard of Oz as part of a play. I can still remember my lines that I had to sing to this day. You want to hear them? I knew you would. As coroner, I must avert, I've thoroughly examined her, and she is not only nearly dead, she's really most sincerely dead. And what do all the munchkins do? They do that. They do, yay, ding dong, the witch is dead, the wicked witch, and they all celebrate, right? They dance in the streets. This is like that moment. Well, they are celebrating and dancing in the street because the wicked witches of God are are dead, for lack of a better term. They're happy that these guys are gone. Now, lesson to learn for sure. Prophets of God, yes or no? These two witnesses, prophets of God, yes or no? Yes. Yes. Declaring God's message, doing God's work. Do the people like them for it, yes or no? All right, let that sink in, okay? Okay. When you do God's work in God's way, you will have God's provision and and protection, sure. Will you always have everyone love you? No. Now, it's not to say that everyone should hate you all the time. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying be a glutton for punishment and purposefully incite people and make them angry to feel like you're spiritual. I'm not saying that. But I am saying what the Bible says. All those that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. These guys do God's task and the world hates them for it. And wrap your head around that. I understand that we live in in America that has been relatively (coughs) docile or even accepting to Christianity for many years. And I'm grateful for that. Let's take advantage of that while we can. But that does not mean that that will always continue in perpetuity and that America will just be accepting of the truth of God or the word of God or the moral compass that exists in the Bible, that that they will love that or accept that. Not in the least. And there are many times where you have to wrap your head around, I may stand for God, I may speak for God, I may witness for God, and people may not like me for it. And I'm willing to be okay with that. I'm willing to to take that on the chin. And I think that most of you can wrap your head around this because some of you, you went through this when you dated your spouse, that you fell in love with them, but your parents didn't fall in love with them or your siblings did not fall in love with them. And now you are engaged or you are married and you get the stink eye. You get the little snide comments at the, at the holiday gatherings. You get the ostracization of putting you to the side because you have loved this one. And if we can understand that on a, on a human level, what it means to have love between spouses and how that could put us at odds with people that are around us, and we are oftentimes okay with it, may it not be said that our love for Jesus wanes because it could put us at odds with people around us. May it not be said that when we're faced with a choice of loving Jesus fervently or being appealing to everyone around us, that we choose to be appealing and somehow quiet down on our love for Jesus. That shouldn't be the case. And sometimes when you love Jesus, people don't love you for it. That's how it goes. And that's how it went for these two guys. They hated them for it. They hated them for what they did, and they killed them. But something happens. There is this preservation that sovereignly takes place of these men. Look at verse 11. After three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on all them which saw them. There's a resurrection that takes place. Now, don't ever forget that God has power over life. If you're struggling with infertility, don't forget that God has power over life. If you got a diagnosis from your doctor, go to the doctor for help. But go to God for healing and don't forget that God has power over life. When you stand at the graveside, remember that Jesus' resurrection was a first fruits and that all the saints of God will be raised to life one day and that God has power over life. Don't ever forget that. And here the spirit of God, the spirit of life enters into them and they raise up in verse number 12. They heard a great voice from heaven saying, saying unto them, come up hither. Hey, be me up, Scotty, right? Get up here. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake. A 10th part of the city fell. In the earthquake, there were 7,000 men slain. And the remnant, the remainder, they were afraid, affrighted, and they gave glory to the God of heaven, not meaning that they became Christians, but meaning that they had to step back and say, this is a God thing. Like this whole, this whole episode, these guys, their ministry and what happened, all of this, like this, we don't have a way to explain this other than a supernatural God thing. Verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe cometh quickly. End of the sixth trumpet, end of the second woe. Next week, trumpet number seven, but that's the end of it. Now, there's a lot that we could learn from that. But I'll give you one. Because I knew today, I knew that I would have less time than I typically have on a Sunday. So I will give you one, I think, very applicable lesson. And I will use William Cullen Bryant as the foundation for this. William Cullen Bryant was the perhaps best poet America has ever, ever known. His poetry really inspired and informed all of the American greats that you would get in American lit. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Edgar Allan Poe, all of those guys were inspired by, by Cullen Bryant. Cullen Bryant was walking alone one day through a field in Massachusetts in 1815. It was a cold day. He was lonely, like he felt lonely. And he saw a duck, one duck by itself, fly through the sky, migrating south for the winter. And Colin Bryant began to think about the duck. And he went home that night and he wrote his most famous poem, To a Waterfowl. I'm not gonna read you the whole poem, but I wanna read you two stanzas from To a Waterfowl. Here's what he says. He says, little duck, those are his, my words, not his. Thou art gone, bye-bye. The abyss of heaven has swallowed up thy form, yet on my heart deeply has sunk the lesson thou hast given and shall not soon depart. Little duck, you're gone, but you taught me something. What was the lesson? Here's the lesson. He who from zone to zone guides through the boundless sky thy certain flight and the long way that I must trace alone will lead my steps aright. Let me put that in just everyday language in case you're like, "Mm, I'm not sure I caught what he was saying there. Here's what William Colin Bryant said. It's such a great lesson. Lonely bird, if God guides you, I think God may guide this lonely bird. That's what he said. Lonely bird, if, if, if God's taking you where you need to go, he's going to take me where I need to go, as lonely as I may feel. And I think there's an application to be drawn from Revelation 11 that you can look at two witnesses and you can say, if God wanted to use these two birds, is there maybe an application that God wants to use this bird and that bird and that bird and that bird? If God protected... In his own way, these two birds, would it be that God would protect these birds as he sees fit? If God had a message to be delivered for these two birds, is there a message that these birds need to deliver? If God supernaturally preserved and gave life to these two birds, is there a life and preservation that he offers to these birds? And the answer, of course, is yes. And while we can approach Revelation and say, okay, I know a little something about the sixth judgment. I see what may happen to these people that are opposed to God. I can see something of the future in these pages. I don't know at all, but I know enough here. I keep telling you over and over and over again, the point of Revelation is not to give you a special piece of knowledge so that you can feel more informed. The point of Revelation is to be a blessing book and to comfort you in many profound ways. And may we take the witnesses that are here and say, what does this mean for the witnesses that are in this room? And if he can do this for them, if he's there for them, guiding them, then I dare say that he's there for us and he's guiding us. And may we be willing, may we have the courage, may this give us Christian courage to step up and to speak up and to say that I know God has a plan and I know God has my back And I'm not scared to do that. Sure, it's uneasy sometimes, but I'm gonna be bold enough to follow God and to declare his word and the good news of Jesus at every chance I get. May that be a lesson we can take.